I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. We can't believe that a whole year has slipped by since we aired our first episode of Action Pack Travel. Well, I've enjoyed every minute, almost. I only just escaped being swept into the English Channel by a wave in Lyme Regis. And I tripped on a first century paving stone in the flaming torchlight and nearly dropped the recorder in the Roman bath in Bath. But it's been a whole lot of fun. We decided to celebrate our anniversary with a look back at a dozen of our favourite episodes. Of course, there are a lot more, but uh, we could only put a few in here. If you want to hear more of any of them, just click on actionpacktravel.com and then go to Episodes. The choice is yours. Each one runs from about 15 minutes to almost an hour, with the average of around 30 minutes. Going back to the beginning, on Friday, March the 13th, 2020, our first guest was Arnie Wilson, the man who skied in more resorts than anyone else, 737 in 31 countries at the last count. Apart from the obvious states like Colorado, Wyoming, California, how many states can you actually ski in in America, and how many of them have you actually skied in? Well, I took great pride in skiing every state in America where you can ski, and that goes from you know the wonderful places in Colorado and Utah uh, right down to extraordinary places that nobody believes you can actually ski in. Uh, the most interesting, perhaps, is Alabama. People look at me as if I'm nuts if I say I've skied in Alabama, and indeed, some of these places in the more weird states, I say weird in terms of skiing, uh, I think they call them feeders, breeders, and leaders. And so breed every state which has even one tiny resort, like Alabama, you can hardly call it a resort, is a, a breeder of skiers. And they will then go on to a feeder, which might be a, a bigger state. Uh, and then you get the leaders, which are obviously Colorado and California and some of the East Coast uh, states. So... When I did this trip in 1994, skiing every day for a year, which is, as you say, is in the Guinness Book of Records, a lot of the skiing was done in America. And it's all, it always haunted me slightly that when that year was over, there were still a few states I hadn't skied in. So over the years, I've made it a pleasure and a challenge. And I have a great mate in America with whom I did this. I did three more trips to America specifically to tick off all the states where skiing is possible. Uh, which I hadn't skied in 1994. And this was fascinating because some states were uh, unexpectedly good and some were pretty average, but I just ticked them all off. And I think there are now one or two states no longer have skiing, which did have skiing back in 1994. But there are now, I think, 38 states where it is possible to ski. And I've done them all, uh, either once or twice or many times. In April, we met up with the hot air balloon man, our friend, daredevil Peter Mason, who has flown balloons over almost every continent. And then he was challenged to go even higher. At the time we were planning to do the Everest flight, there were no hot air balloons that were designed to fly any distance at all at that kind of altitude. We're talking about flying over a mountain that's nearly 30,000 feet high. So you're looking at a balloon that can fly at 35 to 40,000 feet to give clearance to the mountain. So we required that a special balloon had to be built and a special burner also had to be built, designed specifically for the job. Uh, we put together a team of 14 crew, which included cameramen, sound men, technicians, engineers, 
On top of that, we had 20 Sherpas, 50 porters, 90 yaks, a helicopter, and a high-altitude plane, a Pilatus Porter. The whole project took three years to assemble and to succeed in flying over Everest. We had two unsuccessful attempts, one of them interrupted by a coup d'etat in Nepal, followed by the third, which succeeded in 1991. And it was quite an achievement. I mean, no one's ever done that flight since, and nobody needs to, because you can't break a world record for the first time twice. I mean, who remembers the second man to fly the Atlantic solo after Lindbergh? In May, we discovered a gem of a life with Joanna Hardy. Joanna is a fine jewellery specialist and regular expert on the BBC Antiques Roadshow. During her fascinating career, she's travelled the world valuing precious stones. We went to this one place and this lady had a whole load of gold, just loads of just gold jewellery, which was really just sort of scrap value. And then she handed me this ring and it was absolutely filthy. I could hardly see it. It was just absolutely filthy. And she said, oh, this used to be my mother-in-law's. And just wondered what you thought. And it was a square, it was a square stone. It was blue. It was the size of my thumbnail. And she said a jeweler thought it might be a topaz or an aquamarine. Anyway, she really did like talking. She just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked at you. I think she was just very pleased to see somebody because <laughs> she lived on her own. Anyway, she talked a lot. In between that time, I said, do you have an old toothbrush? And could I just use your sink and some fairy liquid or some soap so I can clean the ring. So I went into her kitchen. She was still talking at me. And I started to clean her ring. Obviously, I put the plug in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's always, that's always, you always do that when you're cleaning any jewellery. You always make sure the plug is in the sink. And as I was, as she was talking, 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 and I was cleaning and cleaning. As I was cleaning it, it was getting bluer and bluer. I looked at it with my loop and it was a blue diamond. I just turned around to her and I said, this is worth about a million pounds. And she stopped talking. <laughs> she just, it was silence. And I just, I thought, oh, I should have said that earlier. She would have spoke, <laughs> stopped talking earlier. Anyway, she was absolutely gobsmacked. Uh, had no idea. So she said, oh, well, you better sell it then, please. <laughs> so I walked out with this, with this blue diamond worth a million pounds, and I had to get it to Geneva. In June, came cycling to Australia with a cricket bat. In the spirit of English eccentricity, Ollie Broom cycled rather slowly from London to Brisbane to watch the ashes. His 14-month journey took him through 23 countries, and he played cricket in 19 of them. In Australia, for example, coming down the Stuart Highway from Darwin, the road trains were just... I mean, they were threatening to kill me. I mean, they were, you know, they were horrible, pushing me off into the, into the dust occasionally. And, and if the wind was the different ways, they'd suck you in and it would feel like you were going to hit them. So that wasn't very nice. So there I, I really, I sort of headed east towards the Gulf of Carpentaria, headed down the Barclay Tablelands. And, and yeah, you're probably off, off the beaten track there. There was a, a great moment where I was cycling along. I was actually, I'd been pushing my bike for much of the day through some sand that was a good few inches thick and I was on my bike when this truck came up and they just stopped next to me and the guy who was driving he was in the front with two others and it was a flatbed truck and he just leaned across his mates and he said you stupid bastard Um, and uh, (laughs) and uh, and he just with no, no he didn't say anything else he just got out of his truck and he jumped up 
onto his flatbed and he opened the freezer that was that was strapped down onto the back of the flatbed and he he hurled a frozen bottle of water i mean almost as hard as he could at me um, and then didn't say anything else just drove off and that was sort of outback hospitality for you the, the best thing was the next day that him and his mates came back i was on the same road and they were obviously coming back to that they were is a big gold mining area and i suspect that's what they were doing and he just just very quietly pulled up beside me didn't say a word handed me another water bottle and we had a good good chat um you know a nice chat rather than just a sort of off the cuff hurling abuse at me in july it was sustainable travel with francisco kellett close encounters with angry rhinos are the most dangerous of all possible safari encounters fearless fran describes herself as an eco nut and a hotel junkie who spends more time in africa than is strictly necessary she tells us that she ran towards the beast not away from it and cut off its horn so that a poacher could not and they dart it from the air and then on the ground the team kind of moves in very quickly and the rhino crumples down onto its knees and in comes the vet and they do all sorts of tests and then they literally with a chainsaw they they saw off the horn it doesn't hurt them at all because it's just made of it's made of hair fiber a rhino's horn and it grows back so it doesn't hurt them but they are sort of crumpled on the floor asleep while their nose horn is their horns being chopped off and then we got to do I, I got to do things like take take blood from behind its ear so you know I mean I've never done anything like that obviously never even held a syringe and then I was there with this unconscious rhino taking a blood sample from behind its its ear and I got to touch it and feel it and it was an absolutely extraordinary experience oh amazing sounds amazing and then of course once they wake up which is only about 5 minutes after they go down because they can only have a little bit of this this stuff and otherwise it actually affects them once they wake up you have to run very very quickly because they're angry and confused so we had to dash back to the, the land rover and tear off while it sort of staggered around angrily yeah incredible and this stops people from poaching them because they only want the horn don't they they only want the horns exactly so i actually held this horn in my hand afterwards and it wasn't even a fully grown horn because he'd been dehorned before but this little sort of nub of a horn in the palm of my hand was was worth something like $200,000. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. So they take these straight off to some safe. They're sort of whisked off to Joburg to be put in a safe, never to be seen again. Also in July, we had a solo hiking adventure. Stephanie Hunt hiked the Pacific Crest Trail from the Mexican border to Canada for 2,650 miles. That's 4,250 kilometres. It took her 155 days. I asked her about the wildlife on the trail and whether there was anything dangerous there. These three states have uh, rattlesnakes and other snakes, but most of the other snakes aren't venomous. Rattlesnakes, bears and mountain lions. So I like wildlife. I was excited to have wildlife encounters like those. Uh, I'm quite accustomed to hiking where there are snakes in Australia. So even though I saw some rattlesnake, they were experiences that excited me. And oh my God, I was so excited the first time I saw a bear. I was absolutely thrilled. I'd had my eyes peeled because some other people I'd passed going the other way said that they'd seen bears and it was just such a highlight. I was absolutely thrilled. And I had run into someone and was hiking with someone at that stage and they said, oh, you're hiking much faster now. Is it because of the bear? And I said, not because I'm scared of the bear, just that I was so excited. I was on cloud nine. Uh, I saw seven bears on the trail and uh, was delighted with every bear experience. I never saw a mountain lion. I, I would have loved to have seen a mountain lion. So was there any danger from the bears or did you know what to do to avoid that? Oh, well, these are black bears, which are not the same as grizzly bears, don't have the same reputation as grizzly bears. You do have to be sensible. It's important that you don't get between a mother bear and her cubs. And it's also important that you take adequate care of your food and particularly how you store your food at night. 
So through the Sierra, you must use a bear can uh, and you should leave, uh, you should put your bear can away from where you camp at night. And there were other areas where that was sensible as well. I often slept with my food though, with the bear can or... What is a bear can exactly? It's a canister that fits all of your food and all of your toiletries and all of your rubbish. Uh, And so they're all the scented things that a bear might decide that it likes the smell of. And uh, it's got special anti-lock features. If you think about childproof locks on, say, medicine bottles, it's like that only 50 times bigger and the lock is much harder. You you usually need a tool to help you open the lock because the bears are very clever and learn how to open these devices. You, you, you make sure you stare, store it away from your tent, but you don't store it near a cliff because they will drop them over the cliff to smash them open that way. I didn't have any trouble, but I did encounter some other people who had all their food eaten by a bear. In August, it was from Nigeria to the USA, a cultural journey. We interviewed Noza Yari, who has his own podcast called Culture Class. Noza emigrated to Colorado, and each week he talks to different people from different cultures. We asked him which was his favorite episode. I mean, every episode is pretty unique. It's pretty interesting for me, particularly because I'm generally curious and uh, just learning something new on every episode just gives me that thrill. So every episode is kind of like almost a favorite episode, but one unique episode, particularly for my listeners, uh, and I guess for me as well, was I think that like episode 77, I interviewed a guy called Daryl Davis. Uh, Daryl Davis is this jazz musician who lives in Maryland, and he's a black man. And what he does is he interviews, he he befriends members of the KKK, uh, and he's been doing that for like 20-something, I want to say 30 years now. And, you know, he kind of like reaches out to them, uh, he befriends them, hangs out with them, and slowly gets them to see that. He, he slowly gets them to to give up their ways. So I think he has been able to, he doesn't like to use the word convert, but he's been able to convince about 200 or so KKK clan members to derobe and kind of like uh, give up the ideology. Um, he didn't win everybody over, but, you know, that was pretty interesting because I think I did that interview during the, uh, you know, the protests, which is still going on. And, you know, it just coincided with that. And there was like a lot of reaction. Obviously, some people were not happy. Uh, but my point of view is kind of like, you know, there are different strategies to kind of like win a war. While a lot of people, there's the Malcolm X approach, there's the MLK approach, there are tons of approaches. So this is his approach and he actually has results, you know, converting 200 people who are not living their life with hate just because of what he did. So uh, that was pretty interesting. That was a unique episode and, you know, a couple of other episodes also. In September, we had fly fishing from Trout to Trevally, which was all about Peter McLeod's career as a fly fisherman. His search for one particular fish has taken him from India and the Seychelles to Sudan. Have you had any scary experiences like crocodiles or hippos or anything else that's in the water? Uh, Many, yes. (laughs) Well, if you are going to insert yourself into the environment of creatures which are bigger than yourself you and you spend enough time there you're going to have encounters some of those are probably far more scary than they actually are in reality but when you are hunting trevally for example you spend most of your time up to your waist in water in the surf line and you're looking for trevally in the waves but trevally also hang around with sharks so if you told me 20 years ago that every time i saw a shark i'd be running towards it instead of away from it i wouldn't really have believed you but that is what we do. So tell us about the giant trevally. I never actually heard of it until I looked it up this morning. This is your obsession, right? It is. I mean, it's... um. 
What is it, first of all? So, um, Latin name is Caryx ignobilis. It is a very large kingfish species. It is an apex predator that you find on the flats, mostly through the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. They have a, a cousin in the Atlantic Ocean called a jack, Jack Creval, but the GTs or Giant Trevally get bigger. And I don't know where the obsession really came from. Um, I think anybody who's hooked one on the fly will become obsessed immediately. Have you seen The Blue Planet on the television? Did you see the series of uh, the fish eating birds? No. The footage? Many people who are listening to this may have, may have seen that, but um, they will eat entire turns off the surface and they will come out of the water to eat them. There are very omnivorous fish. They will eat pretty much anything which crosses their path. Including you, if you're in the way. Uh, they certainly give you a nip if you get close enough. They've got some fairly large caudal teeth in the front, and they are, they're very predatory. On the final day of October, where else to go but to Wookiee Hole, a complex of caves deep in the Mendip Hills of Somerset in southwest England, supposedly haunted by a thousand-year-old witch. She was blamed for every death and misfortune that befell the local community in medieval times. She finally came to grief when a young monk from nearby Glastonbury, yes, home of the present-day music festival, turned her to stone with a well-aimed bucket of holy water. We took a private Halloween tour with David, who used to teach history at Manchester University before he became a caveman. I'll, I'll lead the way. Okay. It is very dark down here. Yeah. This is called Hell's Ladder. It was thought by the ancients to, to lead directly to hell from which there was no return. Let's hope they're wrong. <laughs> I hope so. Quite a low roof here. And then the cave widens out magnificently into a great cathedral-like chamber. We're just venturing forward now into the Great Hall. This is the first major chamber. It's called the Witch's Kitchen. Legend has it that the witch was turned to stone by a visiting priest at the behest of the local villagers. And when was this meant to happen? About a thousand years ago. And that's the witch stone, where the witch got turned to stone okay. by Father Bernard. Come under here, folks, and let's go into the witch's parlour. Stay down for a bit here. Don't come up too early. That's the key. This is the witch's parlour. It's a dome-shaped chamber, formed in an interesting way by the scouring action of ancient whirlpools, what gave this chamber its beautiful dome-shaped appearance. It's also what gives the caves beautiful acoustics, which is why we do filming here, music and weddings. So do the bride and groom usually dress up as witches and wizards? We often have gothic-type weddings here. I haven't had a, a bride dressed as a witch yet, but they tend to be quite unusual affairs. Well, if you start married life down here, you, you can only get back, go up, really. Well, absolutely. The only way is up. In November, it was time for explorer Tom Avery, North Pole, South Pole and Verbier. Tom is one of just nine people in history to have completed the Polar Trilogy. That's reaching both the South and North Poles and a coast-to-coast -coast crossing of Greenland. He is also the youngest Brit ever to reach both poles. I asked him if he had any setbacks on his journey to the North Pole. And Verbier, you may well ask, he runs chalets there. Oh, lots of things. Lots of things went wrong. God, I mean, the the the, the hardest part of going to the North Pole, obviously, it's frozen ocean, and but as we know, the planet is warming, and thickness of the ice cap of the Arctic Ocean is reducing year on year. We were actually recreating the first expedition to the North Pole on, on our trip, which was done by an American called Robert Peary in 1909. And the thickness of the ice in his day was about 12 foot. The average thickness when we were up there was less than six foot. But sometimes the ice might only be 
kind of two or three inches thick and it, it's a really fine balance deciding you know whether the ice is is thick enough to, to cross or not and there were you know there were several times when we got it wrong and dogs sleds people ended up in the water and the water temperature of the arctic ocean is a steady minus 1.8 degrees celsius which is the temperature that seawater freezes air temperature minus 40 and you get out of that water and it's a battle for survival and actually the thing that you do to warm up again isn't to stop put the tent up and get the stove going it's to use that adrenaline that is sweeping through you as soon as your little toe touches that freezing cold water and you've just got to harness it flip back into your skis and ski off to the horizon as fast as you possibly can get arms and legs moving again because actually that heat that body heat that you can generate is a far more effective way of raising your core body temperature than being huddled over a over a stove in a tent so it's, it's a real case of mind over matter you know, we, we all made it, uh, humans and dogs alike. In December, we found out everything you want to know about the Roman city of Bath on a private tour lit by flaming torches. You can actually drink there, can you? Yes. Yeah. Tastes nice? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> it tastes a bit like we've got a lot of iron in the water. It's one of the main minerals. So it tastes quite metallic. And we've also got sodium chloride in there. So it's quite salty. People have been coming to try the waters and to swim in the baths for about 2000 years ongoing. It's not very refreshing. It does shock people, actually, that it, it, it's hot. The water in this fountain is about 45 degrees Celsius. So it's a little bit cooler than a cup of tea. Terrace that we're coming up to now, we'll be able to look over and see the Great Bath. It is bright green, and this is due to the algae in the water. So uh, the algae love the minerals. They love the sunlight that they get now that the pool's open air. But in the Roman times, this would have been covered by a large roof. And so it would have been a lot darker around the Great Bath. And this means that the algae couldn't grow. So the water would have been clearer. When was the last time anyone swam in it? So 1978 was the last year that anyone got in the pools and swam around. Uh, people also swam in the sacred spring, which is our other pool. But because this is where all the water comes up and it's 46 degrees Celsius approximately, it was too hot for people to withstand more than a couple of minutes. The Romans never swam in the sacred spring. That was too sacred for them. They believed that's where Sulis Minerva lived. So they wouldn't go in there. That was just for worship. Also in January, we discovered the travels of the hungry cyclist. Tom Kevill Davis cycled from New York City to Rio de Janeiro. Gourmet food doesn't seem ideal if you're on a bike, but no, he collected recipes along the way. Here he's in Mexico, making his way down Baja, California, on the coast road south of Tijuana. It's very hard cycling. It's kind of mountainous desert, cactus forests, so you're getting a lot of punctures. There is no shade. And, you know, the only other people on the road are just like heavy trucks or motorhomes of Americans who are driving down to the southern beaches to escape the winter. And they're pretty unforgiving. And you sleep in the desert. It's just hard, hard work. But when you get to the inside of the peninsula, you have the Sea of Cortez and you have all these fishing. It's, it's one of the most abundant oceans in the world or seas in the world. And it's full of all these lovely fish. And the fishermen there, they basically sell their catch to people who sell fish tacos, which is just morsels of the lovely fish that are deep fried and served in a tortilla. But then you add various salsas and sauces and they're only served in the morning when the fish is fresh. So if you can imagine you've been cycling about 100 miles in the 
you know, the desert the day before. You sleep you sleep rough in the desert, wake up at about 6am and arrive in the next fishing village. And then there's this lovely lady in a kind of makeshift kitchen stand selling this wonderful fish tacos. And you know, I just eat hundreds and hundreds of them. They were absolutely delicious. In January, we aired John Paul Flintoff, An Eventful Life. When COVID came along, this master of the arts reached for his sketchbook. Well, the funny thing is that I, I started just, just before lockdown. I was asked to do portraits of the people in my local parish. So I, I drew 35 people in different places in the church. And then just as that was about to come out, lockdown arrived and a members club in Soho, the union club, asked if I would draw members of the club as a kind of let's keep everybody in each other's mind and also fundraising. So they paid for me to draw their portrait live on Zoom and the money went to Soho Homeless Charity. And it was such fun because I, I would have these people who I, I didn't know just pop onto my screen. I had to draw them there and then and talk to them. And one of them was late, sort of slightly missed the deadline. And it was a person called Olivia Coleman. <laughs> and and I thought, okay, well, that, that she, she said, hi, it's Olivia Coleman. I'm sorry I missed the deadline. I thought, well, okay, yeah, sure. We'll talk matter about the deadline. But I had no idea whether it was like the Olivia Coleman or not until the last minute. And I didn't want to let on my face it. I didn't want any sign of disappointment if it was another the <laughs> Olivia Coleman. And so she, when the one who has actually won an Academy Award popped up on my Zoom, it was just massively intimidating, but also gratifying. And like everyone else, they were all great, but I had a nice conversation and drew her picture. So that was strange. But it was also a little bit like being a journalist and doing an interview. It was like this. It was like me seeing you and having a chat and sharing what's going on. But also a little bit about like sitting beneath the Eiffel Tower and drawing pictures of cartoon pictures of people who came by. Very, very much like that. You don't exactly choose who you're doing or what their be- but setting's going to be. One, one thing I learned quite quickly was that if you draw people on Zoom, they're likely to be fairly square on to you. With, you, you get head, shoulders and a fairly plain background. So I started asking people if they would sit well back from the computer and sort of turn sideways in their chair to try to channel my own inner um, National Portrait Gallery idea about what a good composition was. And they they were much better. But it felt strange for everyone to be on Zoom, but sort of sitting way back over there. Well, the portrait of Olivia Coleman is great. Did she like it? She seemed really, really delighted. Yeah, I, I, I was very happy. What a nice person. In February, we met up with our old friend Dan Egan, extreme skiing pioneer. Dan's one of the greatest American freeriders, who, for the past 30 years, has been making seemingly impossible first descents all over the world. He and his brother set out to climb Mount Elbrus by the Caspian Sea, the highest mountain in Europe. It's one of the seven summits of the world. And oddly enough, Elbrus kills more people than Everest. On our trip and back in 1990, that truly was the case. We lost over 30 climbers. There were 50 people trapped in the storm, uh, and I was among uh, those trapped. uh, We were trapped somewhere around 17,000 feet, and I was 38 hours without food or water. And how did you survive? Well, I was with three other climbers for my expedition, and we had joined up with a group of Russians, and we had dug snow caves uh, for the night. But the snow caves were really spread out. It was 100-mile-an-hour winds. Snowed five feet that night that my two fellow climbers went to another snow cave and never told me. So I was abandoned in my cave. And uh, one of the Russians must have taken a head count 
because he went out in the storm and found my cave and in the middle of the night came into the cave and I believe saved my life. He huddled with me, warmed me back up. I was having visions. I had seen the bright light and Sasha said to me, tonight we sleep like brothers and uh, we survived the night. Finally in March, at the end of our very first year, Action Pack's Louise Hall met up with Matilda Temperley, action woman behind the lens. Tilly is a top fashion and travel photographer. She started out as a scientist in Africa before completely switching careers. I was wondering what it really was that I did want to do. And I was racking my brains and I was thinking, what what if I enjoyed in life? Okay, this is not going to be my life. What is it that I can do? And I, I couldn't really remember what my ambitions were when I was young. When I was really young, I wanted to be a photographer and a trapeze artist. And so it was a time when I was realizing the sort of power of photography to tell stories. So I moved back to London not long after and called myself a photographer. I knew nothing and started learning the trapeze. So it was a, a roundabout route and everybody I was working with at the time was completely and utterly horrified. <laughs> I learned the trapeze and I loved it. I've got a trapeze here in my kitchen. I did my second performance. I was too old when I started really, but I still, I love hanging on it, stretching. It's like a meditation. But in my second performance in front of 450 people, I had tonsillitis and my boyfriend at the time, who I'd persuaded to become a trapeze artist too, dropped me and I managed to break quite a few ribs in my back. And that was the end of that. But one of my absolute best friends in the world as a trapeze artist. She's called Catherine Arnold and all her hashtags is just Catherine Arnold. And so I live vicariously through her now. What's the maddest thing you've done for work? Uh, the maddest thing. I think I've had loads of mad adventures through from visiting lion tamers and to, I found myself in a documentary in Vegas, completely randomly interviewing in bed. An amazing, she was in her 80s at the time, burlesque artist called Tempest Storm, who was a one-time girlfriend of Elvis. So I was lying in her bed and she was telling me all about her love affair with Elvis. And I used to get flown all over the place to photograph such amazing, mad situations. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com. Or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. And I am you. And you are me. It's just a crazy storm.